Good morning. Welcome to class. We have a huge amount of scripture to consider today. I tried to read it really fast, and I can read it fairly quickly, but it'll take 20 minutes to read the section. So I'm, gonna, I'm going to ask your indulgence as we're going through this. I'm going to kind of run it pretty quickly because I want to get to the third chapter, which is where the real, I mean, a lot of stuff happens in the first two chapters, but really where we want to go today because I, I want to talk about a subject that nobody wants to talk about. Newsweek magazine in 2007 published an article on men in depression. We're not even talking about ladies, just gentlemen. They came up with an estimation that six million men in the United States suffer with some kind of depression, and the number they said was probably two or three times that high. 2000, mid-2000, single digits. And one of the major problems that we have as men, well, as people in general, is we don't want anybody to see that we don't have it all together. And that's especially true for men. And yet, where are we as men in the society that God has created within the family? We're supposed to be leaders. We're supposed to be leaders in a community. We're supposed to be the husbands and the fathers. We're supposed to wash our wives in the Word and purify them. We're to lay down our lives to bless them. We're to be there to teach our children morning, noon, and evening, both in formal and informal settings. Just go back and read Deuteronomy 6, 4 through 9, and you'll see how, just how critical this is. We are supposed to be teaching. We're supposed to be the ones offering God's counsel. We're supposed to be the ones that are the example of Christ in the here and now. Ladies, I'm not demeaning your role at all. Because I think if we pull the lens back and take a wide-angle view, what we're talking about is something that everybody deals with. So the question is, and since we've got a gentleman in the role here that we're going to look at today, I want to look at it a little bit from man's perspective, but please don't feel like I'm leaving out, I don't know what the number is now, 52 or 53% of the population is female. I'm not leaving you out. Please understand. As, as the Scriptures tell us in 1 Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has overtaken you except such as is common to man. And the word that's used there is anthropoid, which means men and his kind. So I'm not leaving you ladies out. You all good? Y'all good? Because if you're not good, then I'm, somebody's going to get mad, I guess. I don't mean to for you to. Have you ever found yourself in need of support, in need of somebody helping you? Imagine being this young lady. It's 1999. She's young. She's physically strong. She's got a great job. And she's on vacation. All this is good, right? Okay. And she, she's grown up in the Scandinavian countries. And so what do you do for fun in the Scandinavian? When you're up in Sweden, what do you do? It's probably going to be something to do with snow and ice and stuff. Yeah, she was out skiing. And she skis down this really long embankment. She's there having vacation holiday with a couple of friends. And she skis down this embankment and gets right off the mountain and winds up in the middle 
of a frozen river that promptly breaks and she falls into the frigid water head first. Now she responds immediately by flipping over and putting her face up toward the bottom of the ice, which they measured to be roughly eight inches thick. There's no way she's going to get through. And her two friends arrive, and all they've got are ski poles and skis. You're not going to bust up ice too much with that. But they have emergency transponders, and they immediately hit the button. And the word goes out to a rescue team, which will fly in with a helicopter to get to her. Problem is, they're already on another call on the other side of their area of coverage. So they got to fly this patient back to the hospital, pick her up, pick, drop them off, get to the scene, get her out of the ice, and get her back to the hospital. She's underwater, breathing with a pocket of air, and she lasts for roughly 40 minutes, which is amazing in that water. She eventually succumbs to the cold and stops breathing. Her heart stops, and her body temperature starts to drop. The evac, the evac helicopter gets there 80 minutes after she's gone into the water. They chop her out, saw her out, get her on the, get her on the helicopter, and they fly to the hospital, which is another 30 minutes. I know you're thinking, no way. They get her to the hospital. If you want to be on a list of something, I don't think you'd want to be on this list. When they got her to the hospital, her core body temperature was 56.7 degrees, 42 degrees below your body temperature right now. They said, we're not going to declare her dead. We're going to raise her body temperature up. We're going to see if we can save her. No one had ever done it before. Over 100 doctors, nurses, and technicians worked on her for the next nine hours to get her body temperature up close to normal, and they got her heart to start beating. There was no brainwave activity. Four days later, they started to get some ticks on the EKG. She began to recover. It took three, four months before her gross motor skills came back. That's just to be able to move around. Another few months, and the fine motor skills started to come on. And now today, at age 52, this young lady works, by the way, she worked at the hospital as an x-ray technician. She still works there. She made it because people around her didn't quit on her. She was alone under the ice. I guess it's hard for us to imagine a situation like that. We've all felt that loneliness. But we know that we have friends around us if they just understand us. Imagine, if you will, a friend that never leaves. A friend that's always there. A friend that you can count on always. Yes, I'm talking about Jesus. That even in the dark place, wherever that is, God is there. He can reach you. God is there. He can work with you. And in the story of this man's life, in the story of the prophet Elijah, we see a man who was called of God to do the work. But then something happened. 
he got to a place where he began to rely so much on what he could do, he forgot who was actually driving what was going on. Now, again, I say, I can take the time to read this. It's long. But I think if you'll allow me, I would move through the text so that we can get to the, the big things that are happening uh, in chapter 19. Ahab is mentioned in 1 Kings 16 in the latter, in the latter verses as being the king. He will serve as king over Israel in Samaria for 22 years. He is involved in the worship of Baal. So he's not following God. And he actually goes around and starts setting up altars for another god, Asherah. And so he is doing much evil. In fact, the scriptures say he erected these things and says, Thus, thus Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel than all the kings of Israel that were before him. So this guy was a pretty bad dude. Now we come to verse, to chapter 17. Now Elijah the Tishbite, who was a settler in Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, surely there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. So God has given this prophet this truth. Go to the king. Tell him, until I am told by God and tell you, there's going to be no rain. Then he turns around and leaves. Because God tells him, go away, turn to the east, go to a brook and stay there. The brook will provide your water. Ravens will bring your food. Two times a day he gets fed. So he stays by this stream. But as we know in a drought, how long is the stream going to last? Well, any one uh, elementary student will remind you that water runs in a cycle, doesn't it? What are the three big words they use? Evaporation, condensation, precipitation. And it runs down. And this is called the water cycle. I've always found it fascinating. The Bible is not a science book. It's a book of truth. If it speaks about economics, it speaks the truth. And it talks a lot about money. If it speaks about science, it does speak the truth. About 300 years ago, we discovered that the water cycle actually works the way it does, right? Evaporate, which distills the water, creates the clouds. The clouds move. Imagine moving a trillion gallons of water with air. That's what a cloud does. One drop of rain over a square mile is 14.7 million gallons of water, and yet it's floating above your head in a cloud. Now, if you don't call that awesome, I don't know what you'd call. That's just amazing. That's how it moves. That's how he created it. But that stopped. There is no rain. So the water runs, and it runs, and it runs, and finally it runs out. So now what does the prophet do? He's waited where God has told him. Now God tells him, I want you to rise and go to Zarephath. You'll come to the gate of the city. I've prepared a lady, a woman, that will take care of you when you get there. So he walks up. There is an, a lady. She's gathering sticks. Could you bring me some water? And she does. Oh, could you make me a cake with your hands and bring it to me? She says, well, I'm actually here gathering firewood 
so that I can make the last little bit of flour and the last little bit of oil and make my last meal for my, myself and my son that we may die. That's all we've got. That's all we've got. So the prophet says, would you make my cake first and then you can make the two for you. And so she does that. And what happens in the story, if you'll recall? The flour doesn't run out. And the oil doesn't run out until it starts raining again. So for roughly three years, every time she goes, it's there. Every time she needs it, it's there. Now this all sounds good. The next thing that takes place and so far, the things you're seeing with Elijah are pretty good. Elijah walking strong with the Lord. Positive things are happening. Yes, there's a famine in the land, but it's not his fault. It's the king's fault for doing what he's doing and violating, and violating the trust that God has given him as king over his people. The young man gets sick. Her son gets sick. And it says he gets so sick that the breath of life comes out of him. He's dead. So now she turns to the prophet and says, Man of God, what have you done to me? Have you brought my sin upon me now? My son is dead. Now he lives in an upper room, upstairs in the house. He says, give me your son. Takes the child upstairs, lays him out on the bed, stretches over top of him three times, and asks the Lord to restore him. And he does. And he brings the son downstairs and presents him back to his mom. Another positive, another building time for this prophet to see God is working through him and with him. Everything's looking good. After many days, the word of the Lord comes, I'm in 18, came to Elijah in the third year saying, go and show yourself to Ahab. So Ahab hasn't seen him in three years. And as you read through this verse, he's traveling around and he runs across another prophet. His name is Obadiah. And Obadiah happens to work with Ahab, knows Ahab. And he says, I want you to go to your master, Ahab, and say, I will meet him today. And, and Ahab pretty much says, Macology here, Ahab says, are you crazy? Do you know how much the king has been looking for you for the last three years? He has made, he has made searches through all of the country. To the point that if you cannot find him to the leaders of those areas, you will certify that you've looked for him and that you haven't found him. If I go tell him I know where you are, he's going to put me to death. But he goes. He says, I will stay here. Obadiah is afraid. The Spirit of God will move you someplace else. I'll send him over here. You won't be here. And it'll be me. He'll come after he said, nope, I'll be, I'll, be, I'll be right here. I'm not running. I'm not going anywhere. I'm right here. I need to talk with him. So he goes. Ahab comes to him and says, what, you, are you the one, the troubler of this land? He said, I'm not the one that's causing the problem here. It's you. Now imagine having that kind of boldness. To just stand up to the king and say, I'm not the one here with the issue. It's you. You're the one that's doing this. Have other prophets done this in the past? Or will they do it in history? Nathan does it with David, a man after God's heart. 
when he commits the sin with Bathsheba. To have, to, to know that God has spoken his truth to you, that you are willing to act on that regardless of what the position that somebody else has. To have that kind of confidence in God. Elijah is saying, I trust you. I trust you. Now, we have to keep remembering it. I'm trusting you. He says, I want you to do something for me. I want you to go. I want you to send and gather to me in all of Israel on Mount Carmel, everybody together, bring 450 prophets of Baal and 400 prophets of the Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. Now, this is where you learn there's this difference. Ahab worships Baal. His wife doesn't. She worships at the Asherah pole, and these people hang with her. Okay, sidebar. Husband and wife need to agree on the biggest singular thing in their lives. I would call that God in my life. If you don't follow him, I guess you've got something else you call it. If the two of you as husband and wife are not united in the biggest single thing that you can think about, you're going to have problems galore. Because at some point, you're going to have to say, whose authority is it? Is it yours? Is it his? Who's in charge? Who makes the decision? And when you can't agree, is there another, is there a place where we can go where commonality can be found? If we love God with all our heart, soul, and mind and love our neighbors ourselves, my spouse is my closest neighbor. Would you agree with that? Ought to be. If I love God first and I love her second, and she loves God first and she loves me second, then we ought to have some unity there and we ought to be able to work through our problems. Somebody ought to say amen to that. So Ahab sent message among all the sons of Israel. I'm in verse 20 of 18. Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you hesitate between two opinions? Which, which, which way are you going to go? To, oh, an opinion is what? The act of opining. What is to opine? What does that mean? To think. My opinion is supposed to be based on my thinking, not on some random thing that I simply conjure up in my head. I should have processed. I should have thought it through. I should know the answer before I give my, quote, opinion about anything. Most people don't give really good opinions because most people are reacting to the thing, not really thinking it through. Are you going to stay with one of two opinions? Look, you say, it's this God or it's this God. Which one is it? So he pretty much lays down a challenge. Elijah says to the people, now this is, this is where I think things start to get a little bit strange. He says, I alone am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Now, let them give us two oxes. They can pick them. So, they're going to pick two oxen. We're going to build altars. We're going to let these 450 people build their altar, and I'm going to build the altar over here to God. Because there isn't anybody else but me. So, there's four, you divide the work amongst 450 people. It's going to be fairly easy, right? This guy over here has got to do all the work by himself. So, lay your altar, bring your wood, prepare your sacrifice, 
but don't set fire to it. Just build it. Get it ready to go. Now, he doesn't build the altar for God yet. So they build the altar, and they start in the morning, and they pray, and they're calling out to Baal till noon, and nothing's happening. So he's, Elijah starts taunting them. Well, maybe he's asleep. Maybe he's having a vacation in Jamaica or something. I, I don't know. He's somewhere where you're not. Shout a little louder. Do a little something more. Well, part of their ritual was to cut themselves. So they're dancing around, cutting themselves till it says the blood is gushing out of them. And they, and they and he used an interesting word. They rave all afternoon. Rave. Isn't that an interesting word? They rave all afternoon and nothing happens. So it's now approaching the late hour, the time of the evening sacrifice. And this one guy by himself gathers 12 stones for the 12 tribes, constructs his altar by himself, places his wood by himself, prepares the bull by himself. And there's a trench around it. And he calls the people, douse that with water. It's good and wet. Do it again. Are you sure it's wet? I don't think it's wet. Do it one more time. Three times you've done it. Then he prays. Answer me, O Lord. Answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their heart back again. Because whichever God does this, they've agreed they're going to follow that God. They can see this, they're going to follow Him. Then the fire of the Lord fell, and it consumed the offering, and the wood, and the stones, and the dust. So there's nothing left. Water doesn't stop it. The fire comes down. It's, when we talk about God being an all-consuming fire, I mean, you've burnt wood. You know there's always ashes. They're not even there. It's totally consumed. When the, all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and they said, The Lord... He is God, the Lord. He is God. Now, Elijah does something really radical here. He says, quick, get every one of, the, every one of these prophets of Baal, all 450 of them, corral them, don't let any of them leave. He takes them down into the valley, and he personally kills every one of them, slays every one of them. He's the prophet. God has called him. And he declares he is the only one. Now Elijah says to Ahab, go up and eat and drink, for there is the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. So Ahab goes to eat. And the prophet goes up on the hill, kneels down, puts his head between his knees, and prays. Ask his servant, go up the hill and see if you see anything. 
Nope, I don't see anything. There's nothing out over the sea. Go again. Seven times he goes. He goes up, and on the seventh time he comes back and he says, there's a cloud about the size of a man's fist in the sky. Well, I don't know if you've ever watched thunderstorms build on, in the summer afternoon. They don't start out really big, but they can get very large, right? Okay? I mean, all of this is just water coming up and condensing. This hasn't happened for three years. It comes up, and there's a shower, and it's such a heavy shower that, that's coming that the prophet goes to the king and he says, you need to get in your chariot and get off this hill before this rain comes because you don't get stuck up here. So he goes home, and the prophet then, it says, he girded up his loins and outran him to Jezreel. And he's in a chariot, got there quicker. So Ahab gets to Jezebel, his wife, tells, him all, tells her all that Elijah has done, and now she's upset, very upset. And she says, I will make you like one of these prophets that you have done today by this time tomorrow. Now, what has God done in this man's life? How much has this, how much has he seen? He's watched God raise up somebody from the dead. He's watched God consume an entire altar, everything right down to the dirt. And he turns and he runs. Now, the distance he covers is somewhere between 80 and 120 miles. He's with his servant. He stops long enough to drop his servant off, and it says he goes another day's journey, and he stops under a juniper tree, and he just wants to die. He wants to quit. And he lays down. He's worn out. He's all by himself. When we get in trouble in our relationship with God is when we figure it's all on us to get it done. We figure, and I've heard it used, it was used a lot in my seminary training. Expect great things from God, attempt great things for God. And that sounds really good until you forget about the expecting great things from God part. And you're all trying to attempt this stuff going, hey, God, look at me. Am I doing it right? Am I doing it right? But there's nobody else out here doing this ministry. There's nobody else out here doing this. But this was at the same time that people would say, there's a list of things, of priorities that you need to have as a person who follows after Christ. God needs to be first. Would you agree with that? Sure you would. The second one would be your spouse. Closest relationship that I should have. If I have a spouse, if I don't, then I can take that off the list. Third would be my children, right? Have I, am I unreasonable yet? Doesn't this seem right? The next would be my job. I mean, I have to make money. Provide for my family. And finally, my ministry. And I thought that this was right. And I saw many people do it. And I found myself doing this. My ministry, and I think it's the same thing that happened to the prophet. My ministry became so strong, it supplanted my relationship with God. I started thinking that my ministry was all there was in my relationship with God.
And then I remember the words from Zephaniah 2. Not by power, not by might, but by my spirit, says the Lord. I don't have enough power. I don't have enough strength. I don't have enough smarts. I don't have enough words. I don't have enough. There is not enough of this imperfect person to get any of this stuff done. And if I'm going to order these things and say, God is first and my wife is second and my children are third and my job is fourth and my ministry is fifth and I get those out of sync, I'm wrong. Someone showed me that it should not be God first. It should be God at the center. And when he showed me this, and if you hang around for Sunday school, I want to talk about this. When he showed me this model, it changed everything about how I do things. Because I always have enough time to do whatever my God wants me to do. I just have to figure out who that is, what that is. And if my ministry is my God, then I don't have enough strength. And I believe that's where this, I believe that's where he's gotten he has gotten so tied up in what he believes God wants him to do that he's forgotten that God hasn't left him alone. That God is his strength and his help in his time of trouble. He forgets. Now he's so worn out, he can't even move. So in the scriptures, it talks about him laying underneath this tree and going to sleep. And all of a sudden he gets this nudge. Hey, hey. Elijah, wake up. It was an angel. And the angels brought him water and some food. Why don't you take some, get some nourishment? And what does he do? He gets up and runs around. No, he lays back down and goes back to sleep. <laughs> and he sleeps some more. You ever had one of those days when you're, like, you're just like beat? You've got this schedule that you get up. You go to bed at this time and you get up. And all of a sudden the alarm clock breaks or it's Saturday or whatever day you don't have to work. And you lay in bed for four hours and you go, it's the most restful sleep I've had and I can't remember when. That recuperative sleep, does your body need that? Absolutely. Most people don't realize that they, should, that they should be spending roughly one third of their life asleep. If you don't, a whole part of your autonomic nervous system doesn't really work. Your body heals itself when it's asleep. Once every eight days, you destroy your retina. Every time you walk outside and you beam that energy into your eye, it's burning up those retina cells. Every eight days you get a new one. Every six months, I see a whole new wife. All of her skin gets changed. Right? In fact, pretty much everything in your body gets replaced over the period of about seven years. Your body is constantly restoring itself. You're a hundred trillion cells. That's a number beyond your comprehension. A hundred trillion. Yet your body is re reproducing cells all the time to regenerate you, keep you going. That requires sleep because when you're up and you're active, the body is using your energy to keep you going. You need that time to rest. He'd forgotten. He was worn out. A person gets depressed. When their energy levels drop, oftentimes they're stressed so much, they burn the candle on both ends, around the back and up the middle, if you know what I mean. They're burning it in every direction they can, and they wonder why they can't relax and they can't stay focused. And in that moment, you begin to think, I can't do this. If I don't get rest, my physical body is going to get weak. And when you are physically weak, it affects your mind. 
you're hurt by that. The same way can go the other way. If you're mentally stressed, do you suppose he was stressed out trying to get this all altar built, corral all these guys and, and, and dispatch them, and then take off and run the distance that he ran when he's afraid that God is somehow not going to show up when this woman shows up? Had no problem with her husband. He gets his rest, and the angel says, you need to be restored because you've got 40 days to get to Mount Horeb. And he will go there and he will hide himself in a cave and God will come to him and say, what are you doing here? Well, I'm alone. I'm by myself. There aren't any. There's nobody left. Oh, wait a minute. I got 7,000 people. God speaks to him. I got 7,000 people here. I haven't bowed the knee to, to Baal. You're not alone. Did you, I, it doesn't say this. I'm wondering if he remembers Obadiah has stashed away a hundred prophets in two groups of 50 in caves and is supporting them. Has he forgotten them? Oh, I, I know what it is. You know what we want? We want God to show up with a light show, a magic show. That's what we want. We want God to show up and so overwhelm our situation that we go, yeah, God's got it. Well, what does God do to him? He says, come on out here. We get a mighty wind. We get an earth shake. And we get fire. I'm on a mountain. I'm figuring all of this is probably a volcanic eruption. At least that's what it sounds like. That's big. Does anybody remember when the, when the volcano blew up in Iceland a few years back? You couldn't fly into Europe. Nobody remembers this. There was so much ash in the air that it grounded every plane in Europe. You couldn't get out of an airport. I guess you better had about six MasterCards if you were stuck in Italy because you couldn't leave. You couldn't get on a plane. They're not going to send a plane. Are you going to send a plane up and drive through volcanic, fly through volcanic ash with those blades turning tens of thousands of revolutions a minute? That stuff will cut that. I don't care how good you make that machine. Those little crystals of, of, of quartz and cinder, cut that thing to pieces. You'll fall out of the sky. Well, one did, didn't they? When their plane fell out in Alaska, pilot barely pulled it out because they flew, caught the edge of one volcano up there. There's always a volcano in Alaska. He hears all of that, and he's checking it all out. And then it says that the small voice came to him, and he covers his face. He covers his face. Because in that still small voice was God himself. All of this was the stuff he can do. Are we about wanting God to just show up and overwhelm our situation? Or are we willing to be still and know that he is God? When we feel ourselves sliding into this place where we don't care about anything anymore. We've lost interest in everything. This is depression. When... You either know you shouldn't be eating, but you're eating like you're, talk, you're eating for five people, or you're not eating at all, or you can't go to sleep, or you sleep all the time. None of these things are normal for us, are they? They're not. We must remember what God already knows. We are but dust. If he wanted to mark our transgressions, who could stand? None of us. But are you here today by God's grace? 
Are you moving today in God's power? He created you for relationship. And this is what the prophet is coming to get to. Now, in this place, God asks him again, and he pours out everything that he's got. When was the last time you stopped holding it all in and just poured it all out in front of him? Do you suppose you're going to tell him something he doesn't already know? Hello? He knows. What are you hiding it from him? You're not. You are trying to internalize something you were never built to hold. You are a vessel filled with his spirit, cracked and all. Let that out. If you're struggling, give it up. You can't hold it. He didn't make us for this. What he did make us for was to know him and love him and enjoy him. That's what he made us for. He made us for us to be his witnesses. Now, I know that you've seen people that talk around that talk about their relationship with Christ, and they got a face as long as Texas, if you know what that means. Well, if you follow Jesus, you could be like me. Dude, I don't want to be like you. Not got anybody in mind? Looked in the mirror lately? I'd have to, at least once or twice. Probably more. Talk to my wife, she'll tell you. The Lord said, go and return your way to Damascus. And I want you to do three things. This is important. God's got something for you to do. If you're going to sit, pour your stuff out, then it's time to get up and move on. It's time to get busy with what God's called you to do. Well, I don't know what that is. I don't know where to go to find that. I'm glad you asked. Just go to the book of James and start reading. There are about 126 verses, I think, in there, and about 52 do-it statements. It's almost every other verse. It's do this, do this, do this, don't do this, do this, do this, do this, do this. Well, I don't, my faith is too weak. Do them, your faith will catch up. My faith is strong. Do them because you're supposed to be. How do you lose here? God hasn't told me what to do. Yeah, there's a book full of stuff to do. Just get, it, get into this one book. And when you get all the way to the end, back up and start again. There'll be new stuff to do. There'll be new things to do. Our problem is we let ourselves get down in our little foxhole and we don't figure that God can do anything with us. There was a story, there was a songwriter, he wrote this about a rut. You get in a rut. A rut is a grave with two ends gone. Get that visual aid. Or in Proverbs, where it talks about you, you feast at a banquet, but the banquet you're having is in a grave. That sounds like where I want to have dinner. But we get comfortable with it. Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, stand in the way of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and upon that he meditates day and night. There's a progression. When you walk and you stand and you sit, now you're stuck. God has not called you to that. He's called you to get up and get at it. 
So the prophet is supposed to go. Here's what I want you to do. You've got two kings to anoint, and you've got your replacement to anoint. I'm giving you a task. Get at it. He gets up, he leaves, and he goes to do the things that he's been called to do, and he gets response. What is my one thing that I can do to avoid depression? Actually, it's three. And one of my sixth graders gave me this. He says, you know, whenever I'm not really sure what to do, I always do pro. Pro. Yeah. I pray. I read the word. And I obey what it says. This guy's 12 years old. I pray. I read the word. And I do what it says. I obey. I don't know about you. I like this. I like simple. I'm, I'm, I'm one of those kiss people. Keep it simple. And I, I, the, the next S is for me, not for anybody else. But if you know what I mean, you know what I mean. Um, just keep it simple. It's not complicated. God is, God loves you, and God can be found. Walk with Him. Know Him. If you're depressed, please, if you want to, stay for Sunday school because I want to talk, I want to dig into this more about some stuff because there's so much to do. We, I didn't tell you to bring a bag lunch. And, and I just, I want to talk to you more about that if you care to stay. And if you have questions or comments or whatever, I would be glad to talk to you about this. I would say to you, whether you're sitting here or somewhere out in the ether, God's got a plan for your life. And He wants to change you into the image of His Son. And He can do it, and He will do it if you'll let Him. Father, thank You for being true to Your Word. We may start out broken. And we live in a broken world. We live in the here and now. But you are changing us more into the image of your son every single day. And we pray, Father, now that you would help us to embrace that. And just as we considered the psalm of ascent, as we ascend to your holy place to commune with you now, we ask, Lord, that you would Show us where we're not letting you change us and turn that stuff loose so we may be the men and women of God who walk in the light of truth. We ask now all of this in the great name of Jesus. Amen.